think I've probably asked this question before, uh, but do I have any Friends fans in here? Friends, the TV show, Friends? Good, thank you. I thought nobody was going to answer me there for a second. (laughs) The one thing I love about how we all consume TV nowadays in our world is that because everything's on demand, that my, my kids actually get to watch the same shows that I watched growing up, and we all learn the same one-liners, the same scenes. It, it's, it's just an awesome way to watch TV. It's not like when I was growing up, or maybe for a lot of you, it's not like my dad could ever say, hey, you remember that time in Happy Days? No, Dad, I don't, I don't remember Happy Days at all. But for all my friends, people, let me ask, do you remember this episode or this scene in particular? This is all just because of the sandwich. <laughs> a sandwich? Yeah, you see, my, my sister makes these amazing turkey sandwiches. Oh, oh you know what? I, I'm sorry, I, I believe I ate that. You ate my sandwich? It was a simple mistake, it could happen to anyone. Oh, really? Now, now calm down. Come look in my office, uh, some of it may still be in the trash. What? Well, it was quite large, I, I, I had to throw most of it away. Just a little quiz to see who remembers. So Monica used to put a piece of gravy-soaked bread in the middle. Do you remember what it was called? I had to cut it out. The moist maker. Yeah. Somebody remembers. Well, a couple years ago, uh, my family, we had grabbed dinner from Chipotle. And I don't remember all the circumstances. But let's just, for the sake of the story, let's just all assume that it was after a long day of baseball. Probably a tournament, hot day, multiple games, sitting outside, my whole family. Kids are probably fighting in the back of the car on the way home. And so we stopped for dinner. And normally... I'd get a salad, of course. But tonight, that night, I wanted a burrito, and nothing was stopping me from getting a burrito. And so we, we get the burritos, we get our food, we get home, we walk into the kitchen, we set everything down on the island, and then at least the way I remember the story, I went back out to the car to get everything all by myself. And so I've got backpacks and stuff on me like a pack mule, and I'm carrying it into the kitchen, and the moment I walk into the kitchen, I see my son, who I gave life to, taking his first bite out of my burrito. My burrito. And I lost it. I mean, like, I can't even, like, adequately describe how ridiculous I must have looked in that moment. My wife probably could for you. But I'm like, hey, that's my burrito. And, and my wife calmly pulls a burrito out of the bag and says, um, no, this is your burrito. And so what's funny, what's awesome is, you know, from this point forward, anytime my family thinks I'm being a little bit ridiculous or getting a little bit too worked up about something, they just go, okay, my burrito. And I'm like, and then we all laugh and it's fun and I calm down and it's great. That's not really how it works. (laughs) Anyway, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But we're in week four of our series, Who Are You? And what we've really been trying to do is just kind of catch a glimpse of ourselves in the mirror and get an idea, kind of discover our own identity based in light of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save sinners like you and sinners like me. And he died on the cross as the complete and total payment for our violation of sin against a holy, perfect God, absorbing all of God's wrath, all of his wrath towards those who would choose to believe, and then was resurrected on the third day as proof of that complete and final payment. That, that's the gospel. That's kind of this overarching 30,000-foot look at the gospel. And then based on what we do with the truth of that gospel, we can begin to see who we are. 
And that is where we begin to see kind of our general identity. That's what we've been calling it all series, this kind of overarching general identity. And for those of us who have decided to put our faith in Jesus to accept that gift of his payment and absorbing God's wrath towards us on the cross, those of us who have chosen to do that, we are children of God. And we've chosen that we're not going to use the world's framework to define our identity. We, if you remember, we're not going to look in, we're not going to find our desires, we're not going to look around and then finally look up. No, we've decided, we've understood, we've come to know that we're not self-defined, that we're God-defined. And then we began to look at the gospel. We, I use the metaphor of this diamond. We began to look at the, the gospel from a bunch of different angles, seeing the beauty of, and the, the bigness of the gospel from some different angles. And when we look at those angles, when we begin to see what the gospel truly means for us, that's when we begin to know what our specific identity is. What, what, what the gospel truly does for us, what the gospel begins to say about who we are. And this is what the past few weeks have been about. After we put our faith in Jesus, asking him to be the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, week two was you are justified. You cannot justify yourself. It's not by your own works. It's not by your bloodlines or your lineage. It doesn't matter that your mommy and daddy were Christians. It doesn't matter that you used to do this and now you don't. Those are not the things that matter. It's Jesus that justifies us by his blood and nothing else. And then we talked about the fact that there's a day coming. By the grace of God for all of us, there's a day coming where we'll hit a crossroads and we'll have to decide based on what we learn about ourselves that we'll be confronted with the reality that we're not who and what we thought we were and we'll either try and justify ourselves, we'll either try and stack up all of our good works and all the good things about us and present them to Jesus in hopes that that, that might be good enough or we'll do what we should all be doing, understanding that's never going to be good enough and throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and accept his free gift. And then once we do that, last week we talked about the fact that you're a new creation. Uh, this idea of complete and total newness that occurs when we put our faith in Jesus. And I didn't really hit on it much last week, but what really happens is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself actually takes up residence inside of you and he begins to change you from the inside out. Everything about you becomes different. The way you experience the world, the way that you see the world, it changes it gives you a new heart, and the things that you value and the things that you desire, they're new. And then you're given a new mind, and your mindset shifts just a bit, and, and you're no longer swayed by the ups and downs of this world, but now your mind is fixated on God and his purpose and his plans and his ways. And then finally, once all that happens, we, we, we land in a new identity, which kind of leads us to what today's all about and the fact that when we put our faith in Jesus and we've been justified and we become a new creation, we are also adopted. I have four kids. I think most of you know that. Uh, but thankfully, there's always new people in the room. So let me tell you a little bit about my kids. I've, I've got four kids. My, my oldest, the, kind of the shortest male, <laughs> he's 21. I know. doesn't look like I can have a 21-year-old. That's fine. It's because you don't see me from behind. If you see me from behind, you think I have 21 year <laughs> Then my 18-year-old Corbin. Then my, well, today, the guy in the hat, 15, he's right there in the pink. So yay, 15 today. Happy birthday. <laughs> I haven't seen him yet. He was asleep when he... Happy birthday, bud. Love you. There you go. <laughs> anyway, and then Cadence, she's 11. Now, anybody who's known Cadence, spent any time with Cadence at all, really, has at least wondered at one point if she's the best human on the face of the earth. Like, that's probably crossed their mind because she is an amazing human being, beautiful inside and out. Carson, whose birthday is today, uh, he, is, he has a very strange yet very awesome personality. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very fun person to be around. He's extremely fun-loving. 
Everything for Carson is about how can I have the most fun. And that's why he's fun to be around. Corbin, who is in so many ways very similar to me, kind of my little mini-me. We like the same things. We're both extremely introverted. You probably don't know that about me because I stand up here, but I'm, I'm very much an introvert. We both flex when we walk by a mirror, so he learned that from me. We're a lot alike in that. Uh, Caleb, Caleb, my oldest, is the polar opposite. I mean, in so many ways, he is extremely outgoing. He is overly extroverted. He will have a conversation with anybody. Everything he loves happens to be the things that I never really liked growing up. So we are on polar opposites. All my kids, different in so many ways. All of them, even cadence at times, will drive me nuts. They will drive me absolutely insane, yet there is nothing. There is nothing they could do. And trust me, it's as if they've tried. There is nothing they could do that would ever make me not want a deep, personal, intimate relationship with them for the rest of their lives. Now, they have all the power in that, right? Like, they may not want to have anything to do with me as they get older, but, but they can't do anything. And I've even tried to imagine different things. And they can't do anything that would kill my desire for closeness and intimacy with them. And now Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 7, I think he's trying to draw my attention to something. I think he's trying to draw my attention to the fact that there's something in that thought for me. That there's something in that thought for all of us. When he says this, if you then who are evil, if we're, we're terrible, right? We're not great parents. We're, we, we mess it up all the time. Know how to give good gifts to your children. Have a desire to be with your children. Have a desire to love and have intimacy with your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? <laughs> Here's my confession. It, I, I shouldn't even really have to make it. My, my family's in the room. They can tell you as a parent, I, I'm human. Any other human parents in the room? Yeah. For those of you that are parents, anyone ever inconsistent or selfish? Why are you all looking at me like I'm the only one? Raise your hands. Come on. <laughs> anyone ever over-discipline or under-discipline? Anyone ever snap and say something ridiculous? Like, my burrito. <laughs> See, what Jesus is actually saying right here is that out of the gate, he's telling us, you know, you try, but you're, you're kind of evil. Like, you're not good moms and dads. You're kind of inconsistent. You snap and you blow up and you say dumb things. And if you could ever sit back and actually see what you said and listen to yourself, you'd actually be kind of embarrassed. But if you, even you, if you have an urge to do well, uh, if you have an urge to, to love your kids well, Jesus is trying to draw your attention to that. Even, if, even when you, with your kids the way that they are and, and you the way that you are, and yet you still know that you want to be with them. You want to love them. You want to treat them the best that you can. You want to have relationship and deep intimacy with them for the rest of their lives. How much more? How much more does your heavenly father want that with you? How, how much more does he long to be with you, have an intimate relationship with you, so that there's no distance, that there's only nearness with him? Jesus is saying, look, hey, I get that you have that impulse, that you have the impulse to know and love your children and, and to not have distance with them and to not have secrets with them, but you, as inconsistent as you are at pulling that off, imagine your heavenly father, who is nothing but consistent, your heavenly Father, who is love. It, it's not just something he has, it's, it's who he is. 
and he ferociously is committed to knowing you and pursuing you and to having deep, committed, intimate relationship with you. So that's the truth. But yes, so many of us, a follower of Jesus or not, we, our experience of God looks nothing like that. Either for you, that isn't your story. You didn't have parents that expressed that desire. You didn't have parents that had any real desire to have that type of relationship with you. And so you have no framework for that kind of love and that kind of understanding. Or maybe for a lot of you, you did have parents that, that loved you. You did have parents that claimed they, there was nothing that you could do that would make them not want to have a relationship with you. But that all changed when you told them. They said that there was nothing you could ever do to sever that, but that all changed when they found out. And so your view of God and his reaction to you mirrors theirs. They said they'd love me. They said they always want relationship with me until they heard. They said there was nothing I could ever do until they found out. And God, I mean, he knows everything, right, which means he knows about this. And does he love me? I mean, sure, he, he might love me, but I'm, I'm quite positive he wants nothing to do with me. And thankfully, thankfully, that's just not the truth. Regardless of our story, that couldn't be any further from the truth. Let me try and show you what I mean. We looked at this verse actually in week one. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And we cry by him, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So the first part of this passage, as we, as we kind of think about what it means to be a child of God, for those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, is that you, you no longer have. You used to have, but you no longer have a spirit of slavery which leads to fear. What we're seeing the Apostle Paul unpack here in the, for the, in the gospel here is that we were once enslaved. And that enslavement led us to have fear. We were enslaved by anything that we trusted in for our salvation, our identity, for our fullness of life that was actually unable to give it to us. That was actually unable to stand up against the weight of it. And, and I think there's, there's three of them, at least three of them that we're going to talk about today. So where do we go to find salvation, to make sense of life, to fill that void that we feel when we feel empty? Well, the first place is self. And, and I know we've hit on this over and over and over again in this series. But this idea that we have to fix it. This idea that we have to make it right. And historically, for all of us, that's looked like self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness, this idea of, again, back to the justification week, I'm great, man. At least I'm not like him. Uh, at least I'm not as bad as her. I'm, I'm a better mom. I'm a better dad than they are. It's this idea of self-justification. It's, it's puffing yourself up. It's looking at all your good works and using that as a way to justify yourself before God. And then there's self-pity. Self-pity is this idea that you can't see any goodness in yourself at all. Every time you look in the mirror, all you see is something terrible and gross. And then there's self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is really just the low-key belief that you have that you're God. <laughs> I, know, I know you would never say that. I can't imagine actually anyone saying that out loud, but that's self-sufficiency. Now that's what's historically been looked at and, and thought of as the way that we try and find 
salvation. But at the modern moment, kind of we've talked about this earlier, in our day today, they're actually calling it, sociologists are actually calling it expressive individualism. And this brings us back to an idea that we've mentioned multiple times, this idea that we've discussed that to find yourself, you have to look within yourself. That you've got to take the journey inward, and, and that's exactly what's happening. That's what's happening in our culture. It's what our kids are being pushed towards. It's what we're constantly being drawn to as a culture. That I need to go in and I need to find my deepest desires and make those desires who I actually am. But you know this, because I know this, our desires are constantly shifting. And those shifting desires constantly competing with each other, that's what makes you a slave. You're a slave to fear in that moment. How exhausting. How exhausting to feel like you have to completely reinvent yourself every couple of years. To have nothing external, nothing outside of yourself helping you understand who and what you are. To constantly ebb and flow to your ever-changing desires, which if you're honest with yourself, that whole idea is making you kind of miserable. So it's this idea that to find salvation, uh, we have to look inside ourselves that brings enslavement which leads to fear. And if that's not it, then others, we look to others and man, how often do we look to others to fix what's wrong with us? So many of us looking to our spouses to be the ones to fix all that's broken inside of them, placing a pressure on them to be something that they were never meant to be, something that they have zero capacity to actually be. And we can't figure out why this just isn't working out. It's an impossible pressure to put on somebody. It's an impossible pressure to put on a spouse or a group of friends or anybody outside of yourself for others to be the one to make you happy, to help you find peace, to help you find joy and fulfillment. It makes you a slave. And it makes you a slave because what if they don't love you? (laughs) It, It makes you a slave because if you're looking to them to help you find fulfillment and joy and peace, but they don't like you or want to be around you, what if they reject you? You become a slave to that fear. And the third thing is religion. And I actually really hate that that word has become what it's become for us in our culture today. But it's, it's this idea of outside-in rule following. Kind of tipping the scales in my favor so that the good, good outweighs the bad. That, so that it can make me a, a good person so that I can possibly get into heaven if there actually is one. There's a great story I've heard about the author C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a, a Christian author way back in the day. I don't know if the story is true, but it's good. I looked for it. I couldn't find it, but I like it anyway. Here's a story. So C.S. Lewis, he was actually a professor at Cambridge, and this was a long time ago. I like to imagine him uh, wearing a hat and smoking a pipe. I don't know if he was, but that's how I'm imagining the story. You can imagine it with me. So he's walking through the halls of Cambridge. He's got his pipe. They didn't know anything about secondhand smoke back then, so it's fine. They're, they're okay. And so he's smoking his pipe, and he walks up to a classroom, and the professor's in this classroom with the class, and they've, he's got all the world religions written out on the board, and they're in there kind of debating back and forth. Like, what's the difference? Like, what, what makes one good and one bad and all this different stuff? He sees C.S. Lewis walk up to the door, and he circles Christianity, and he says, okay, Clive, what's the difference? What's the difference? So C.S. Lewis stands at the door and takes two puffs. He says, easy. Grace pipe drop and he's like oh yeah right yeah he's like there's some, there is something different there's something different not all world religions are a bunch of hey you follow this list of rules and got to tip the scales in your favor the reason all that makes you a slave is because you'll never know what the scales are <laughs> you'll perpetually be trying to 
earn something and lessen the, the bad so that the good goes up and the scales, but the scales don't even exist. That's not how God has chosen to reveal himself. It's not how God has chosen to work. Your good outweighing your bad in, regard, in regards to God's glory, it means jack squat. And so you'll be a slave to fear. You'll create distance between yourself and God every time you make a deposit on the bad side of the scales. Every time you do something that you know you shouldn't have, you'll, you'll take that step back and you'll create the distance. But God doesn't want any distance. That's not why he's done all that he's done for you. Each of those three things will make you a slave and draw you back into fear. But thankfully, thankfully for all of us, the verse doesn't end there. See, Paul goes on, he says, hey, that's not you. That, that's not the gospel that you believed in. You have not been given a spirit of slavery that pulls you back into fear. Rather, you have been given a spirit of adoption. And if you notice, if you notice, that's a capital S. So what we have here is that we're, we're talking about somebody's name. We're talking again about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity coming in and dwelling inside of you and changing you. You've been given that spirit, the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you, and he seals you. And it's by that seal that we cry, Abba, Father. This is actually a really interesting thing that Paul is doing here. If you were to actually just read it, uh, it would actually say, Father, Father. He uses two of the same words, one in Aramaic, one in Greek. Uh, except the Aramaic, Abba, has an implication in it of intimacy. Uh, it could actually be translated daddy. And so I don't know if you guys have any friends that you pray with and those, those friends pray, oh, daddy, father, God. <laughs> it makes me a little uncomfortable, but that's, it's biblical, it's good. But that's, that's what that word Abba actually means. It's, it's what it's trying to help you understand. But one of the things Paul's trying to get you to know is that your heavenly father, that he wants this great intimacy with you. It's the type of relationship that he wants to have with you, Abba. And the great power he will use in exercising his fatherly power to make sure that you get home. I, I tend to think that in a place like this, and by this I mean kind of Omaha, Midwest, that, that we're in real danger of, of thinking of God as being just kind of a, an ideal. Like, is the most logical option, but it's not reality for us. Here's what I mean. I still think people in this area, I know it's changing rapidly, but in our culture, most people have some concept of God. Uh, they grew up that way. They, they, they went to confirmation. They, they grew up in, the, in some sort of church environment. They have an idea of what they think God is. And I think too many of us know about him, but we just don't know him. And this intimacy that we've been invited to by a father that, that doesn't want any distance between him and his kids... We just don't know anything about that. Most of us only know him like a celebrity we stalk on Instagram. So for many of us, for far too long, we've lived out from underneath the intimacy and the power of a father who loves us. Let me show you kind of these two ideas back to back. We're going to look at Zephaniah. I don't think I've ever preached out of Zephaniah before. Zephaniah 3 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's actually with you. And I, I really want, as a father, I want this to be true. I don't know if it is, but I want it to be true. That when I come home 
when I show up in my house that my wife, Holly, and my kids, that they think, oh, dad's here. Dad's here and I, and I, I feel a little safer. Dad's here and, I, and everything's just going to be okay. And, and there's kind of a non-anxious anxious presence in the house when I show up. This is God saying, hey, I'm in your midst. I'm not far away from you. I've not created distance. And it goes on. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, if you've got kids or if you are a kid with even somewhat of a healthy parent, you understand this on some level. See, none of my kids are finished products yet. All of my kids have things that drive me crazy, but I can still rejoice over them with gladness. When I see my kids doing something that they love to do, I can rejoice over them with gladness. And, and I'm not thinking to myself, oh, once they finally stop doing this or stop acting that way, then I can finally love them. This is, this is what it says, that God rejoices over you, rejoices over you with gladness. And I don't know if your daddy could do that for you. I don't know if he could or if he just didn't. And so maybe this idea really jacks you up. You start thinking that God must be like your earthly father who was cold and couldn't show emotion and wouldn't connect with you and seemed angry all the time. And this is saying, no, that's not, that's not what he's like. He's not that kind of dad. Why would you create distance from him? Why would you create space? Why would you run from him? Who would avoid being rejoiced over with gladness? He, he's not waiting for you to be who you're going to be. He, he knows where he's taking you. He knows it's going to take you a long time to get there. He knows you're going to walk with a limp. He knows you're going to touch things 4,000 times that he told you not to touch. And yet he still, he still wants an intimate relationship with you. He doesn't want there to be distance. He wants you to draw near, to be close to him. But he doesn't just desire intimacy. He's also bringing power to the table in Deuteronomy, we see, For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. A couple of things I want us to notice. First, I want you to notice that this didn't say, I'm the Lord your God. Have a seat on the couch, find your favorite beverage, and I'm going to go whip up on your enemies. That's not what it said. He didn't say, hey, let go and let me. Because that would make him a terrible father. Now, what he's saying is, because he's an all-powerful father, he says, I'm coming with you. I'm, I'm coming with you and I got you. So if Abba, if Abba carries this intimate daddy kind of idea, then this other Greek word, it, it carries this idea of strong and powerful God. I, I don't know if the young ones do this today, but I know we did in my generation. Today it probably hurt people's feelings or something. But we used to say, you know how strong my dad is? My dad could totally beat up your dad. <laughs> right? Are you, are you serious? Have you seen my dad? Why would I be anxious about that? Have you seen my dad's arms? I mean, my kids say that. I don't know about your kids. My kids say that. <laughs> Do you know how wealthy my dad is? Why would this even bother me? So you have this father, this idea of a father who is constantly moving towards you, who is constantly pursuing you, who constantly wants to rejoice over you 
whose desire is to just be with you, to, for you to rest and to sit with him in closeness and in the quietness of his love, establish peace. And it saves me from being a slave to fear. But then there's this power, <laughs> a power to deliver and to walk with and to never abandon and, and to never leave alone and to never grow weary of me. I mean, even the people who love me and know me best, they're going to grow weary of me, I guarantee it, but not my heavenly father. See, Jesus actually gives us a powerful message to kind of bring this home for us. And my challenge to you, for so many of us, we know this story. We know this story and it's so easy for us to just kind of turn off for a second because we know where it's going to go. We, we know the end. We, we know the punchline. And we think we know all the application for it. We know what God's trying to tell us. But man, the beauty of the Bible, the beauty of, the, of Scripture is that it's alive. God has something new for you today. I believe it. And so when we read this passage, would you just dive in with me and listen, maybe like it's for the first time. And this is Luke telling a story about a story that Jesus told. And he said this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out in the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Listen to me. So many of you still have your speech that you want to give to God about why you'd make a great servant. So many of you are still coming in like, hey, I can, I can fix this. I'll stop doing this. I'll start doing that. I might be able to do something. I think you could use me as a servant. And you've got a father who scans the horizon Every day, who scans the horizon just hoping to see the outline of your form as it crests the horizon. And when he sees you, when he sees you who squandered your blessing on reckless living, the older brother would actually say later that you devoured his property with prostitutes. He doesn't even respond to your little deal that you're trying to make with him. I'll just, I'll just be your servant. I'll just, I'll just do good things for you. And he's not having any of it. Because he's your father. And fathers don't make slaves of their kids. So he's not going to make a deal with you. He's not going to let you try to earn his love. He's not going to let you enslave yourself again to try and earn something from him that he's already freely given you. 
He refuses to allow you to turn yourself into a slave. And what he wants to do is have intimacy with you and use his power to protect you. And this idea is nearly impossible for us to believe, which I, why I believe Paul ended his little argument back in Romans. He ended it like this. He said, the spirit of God testifies to our spirit that we actually are children of God. Some of you are thinking to yourself, hey, I put my faith in Jesus. I've done that, and it's great that I'm adopted and all, but I'll tell you what, I I don't feel nearness. I don't feel any closeness or intimacy. And so what does it actually look like? How do, I, how do I live this out? And so I think for you to begin to possibly even experience any of this closeness, I've got one thing. It's really powerful. You should write it down. Talk to him. And I'm not like, this isn't like rehearse the, the planned script in your head like a, like a teenager who got caught. And so you're trying to figure out what you're going to say when you get home and so that maybe he might be okay with you. Now, that's not the talking I'm talking about. Now, be honest with him. Like, man, I, I did it again. I did it again. I'm sorry. Or, or honest, like, God, I'm really pissed. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why you allowed it to happen this way. Just tell him. Maybe, maybe try, God, I'm really thankful I'm thankful that I have a family that loves me and that I love. And, and maybe we talk to him in that way. And let me, let me just tell you, I can promise you, I can promise you that as you talk to him, it will be you drawing near to him. Because he didn't go anywhere. Every ounce of distance we feel from him is not because he took a step back. It's because we took a step back. And so every time we take the time to speak with him, to be honest with him, to, to not try and hide anything from him, to not try and be something that we're not. We're taking a step towards him. And so here's the offer that kind of echoes within the doctrine of adoption. <laughs> Won't you come home? The invitation is just to simply come home. Maybe f- for some of you, you've never come home at all. I've been in this game long enough to know that for a lot of us, our whole understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with God is to try and tip the scales in our favor. (laughs) All your energy just to try and ah, get it to tip over just a touch when all that God wants to do is be near you. Trying to get him to tip and thinking, oh man, if I do this, God will bless me. If I do good and don't do bad, then God will bless me. If I stop this and start that, then maybe God will love me. And all your energy spent on imaginary scales when in reality you have a heavenly father who wants closeness and intimacy and to cover you with his power. And that's what the gospel offers. And maybe you've never heard the gospel like this. Maybe you've never seen it from this angle. You've heard, oh, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. But you've never heard that the God of the universe desires to rejoice over you with gladness. And not because of anything that you've done but because you've thrown yourself on the mercy of Jesus to be justified. So you don't have to justify yourself. You're justified by him. Well, what if I mess up? What if I fail him? Well, you're going to fail him. But the good news is is he makes you a new creation, and he's going to rejoice over you anyway. And so as you navigate the confusion and the anger and the doubt and the frustration and the sadness and the hurt and the compulsions of your heart, your heavenly Father just invites you to sit in his quietness, and in his love, and receive from him peace, and be protected 
by his power as your heavenly father. Would you pray with me? For those of us in the room who have never accepted that free gift, we, we've never experienced the love of a father like that. I, and I just want you to know that in, in, a, in a moment, in a heartbeat today, everything can be different for you. That, that simply by acknowledging the fact that maybe you're beginning to believe that God does love you. And because of that love, you're, you're compelled to pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I need you to be my savior. Would you be my savior and the leader of my life? God, I thank you for these truths today that, that I think are so big that we, we may not even really have the capacity to fully understand the love with which you have for us. Uh, what we have is a, is a messed up earthly idea of what that looks like, even in the best scenarios. God, we're so grateful. Would you help us to know what it means to take steps towards you, to, to not run and hide when we mess up, but to to turn towards you and honestly speak with you and to tell you in hopes that we might grow our relationship with you. Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.